these verses in 31 and 32, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And Paul says, this is a profound mystery. And then he says, what I'm actually talking about here is Christ and the church. So I want us to hold on to that. Last week, um, we started and we ended with a real sense of a posture of humility. As we journey through this series, we have to continually bring ourselves back to that posture. I really felt um, after last week, and just as I've been uh, working through this during the week with God, that it it felt like last week, and I believe each week as we journey through this, it, it feels like we are stepping into sacred space. Like this is, this is holy ground. And although I, I don't think we physically need to take our shoes off as, as Joshua did as he stepped onto holy ground in the presence of God, I think we need to remind ourselves that our posture of humility is like us taking our shoes off and going, this is not just a topic or an idea. This is holy ground. So I wanted to start this morning with being a little bit honest. I often hear, especially when it comes to the topic of sexuality, that people say, the church just needs to be harder on sin. We don't need to be hard on sin. What we need to be is honest about sin. Honest about our own sin. I was confronted with something this week that forced me to be honest about myself. And it forced me to be honest with my wife. A number of years ago, I, uh, I sat down with my wife and I repented and asked her for forgiveness because I had been so convicted in my heart about how I was treating her. And I realized that growing up and consuming pornography had distorted how I saw my wife and how I treated her. This week I had another one of those convictions where I realized how the purity culture had collided with that secular culture and had distorted my view. So I got honest with myself, with my wife, and with God. I read a quote or a part of a book that just hit me right between the eyes. I want to read it for you this morning. It's in the book called Talking Back to Purity Culture by Rachel Joy Welcher. She shares about the sexual ethics of hookup culture. She says, The typical rules of hookup culture are to avoid emotional attachment, relationship, and exclusivity. Enjoying multiple sexual partners without getting emotionally entangled means learning how to separate what you do with your body from what you do with your heart. Sex didn't have to be this way. It could have been animalistic. 
It could have been nothing more than an impulse, a drive to procreate, and we could get no pleasure out of it all, no bonding hormones, no orgasm, no sense of release. Instead, we have this experience that is unique to humanity, where a person can experience another person, where a person can intimately know another person, where two people can be unbelievably vulnerable with each other. Too often, as Christians, we treat marriage like our right to enter the mindset of the hookup culture. It's our ticket in, and now we can have sex whenever we want. For years, books on marital sex have promoted this mindset. After all, this is what the young men were promised, their own private porn star, to meet all their sexual needs, and who also happens to make sandwiches. It is completely within the realm of possibility to dishonor God in the way we engage sexually with our spouses. I believe that the reason why statistics for Christian marriages are known better than the non-Christian is because we are living into the secular narrative while trying to obey the rules of the purity narrative. And it is causing chaos and confusion. If you weren't here last week, you really need to go back and listen to get some context for where we're heading this morning. I realize you can't quickly go away and do that, but I really encourage you, don't walk away from this morning going, well, that was weird. This is, I'm building, building on each week. So today, uh, I want to give us a picture of where we are heading. Um, And uh, so today I'm going to be talking about a better story. Last week we talked about the secular narrative, the purity narrative, and I ended with saying there's a better way, there's a better story. And so today we're going to talk about that better story. Uh, Next week we're going to talk about LGBTQ and a better way forward. The week after that, week four, we're going to talk about marriage and singleness as spiritual formation. Week five, we're going to talk about living into the story of Jesus and our new identity. And then week six, we're going to have a Q&A session. So if you've got questions and they don't get answered uh, in, as we talk through the series, then we'll, we'll specifically take some time to answer those. Um, also, Squadcast will be answering questions as well. All right, let, let's give a really quick summary of the two narratives, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Um, so the, the secular narrative, first and foremost, is this idea uh, that of the sovereignty of self, that, that the pinnacle of human experience is happiness and true freedom means to be free from responsibility and consequences. Life is a glorious or not so glorious, depending on how much money you have, accident. There's no creator, which means there's no creation, which means there's no design and no purpose. Life is meaningless, so feel free to find meaning in whatever you want. But we certainly don't need God to see our world flourish. In fact, God is just a dead weight. So in other words, I'm not worth much, but thankfully neither are you, so let's just have some fun. More than 300 years ago, a scholar called Blaise Pascal wrote that there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. See, when we run away from God, we must fill that void with something. For many, the answer is love and sexual fulfillment. And while sex in our world has been cheapened, at the same time, it has been elevated to represent our identity, our value, and our happiness. 
And we are witnessing a massive social experiment that will, in the end, increase the very happiness that is attempting to remedy. As our everything goes, morality plays out, we are witnessing drastic increases of anxiety, depression, suicide, and addictions. Loneliness is now considered one of the greatest health crises of our Western culture. The debate about sexuality is not ultimately rooted in tolerance, but it is what we believe, what we believe will result in human flourishing and health. If Pascal is right, then every perceived freedom that draws us away from Jesus will eventually become another form of human bondage. So when I was growing up in my generation, I was at the start of and coming to the end of what we would call hookup culture, where I can access uh, people through apps. It's just swipe, I'm not sure which way, left or right on Tinder. You know, and, and so I, my generation was the start of, and we are coming to the end of this idea that, that sex can be divorced from relationships. But where we are heading is this idea that sex can be divorced from what it means to be human. That sex is divorced from humanity. When I first started this series, I started writing down a whole lot of myths that we may believe about sex and sexuality. And the first one that I wrote down was this. What I do with my body doesn't affect me or anyone else. That is one of the myths that we have believed what we do with our bodies absolutely affects us and it affects others. It affects us spiritually and mentally and emotionally. And each time we give our bodies to another, we are creating soul ties to them. See, this is why our theology of our bodies and our embodied sexuality is so important. I am not a disembodied person. And sometimes even our Christian theology plays right into that secular narrative that one day we will be disembodied spirits floating somewhere in this place called heaven. And these play right into these, these secular narratives that we are disembodied people and that what we do with our body doesn't matter. See, what does it mean when Paul says to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God? He, he could have said our hearts, he could have said our souls, he could have said our spirits. But he said, offer your body as a living sacrifice. We, we are not spiritual beings having a bodily experience. We are spiritually embodied people. And what with, we do with our bodies matters. And what we do with our bodies points to what we believe about anthropology and it points to what we believe about theology. See, last week I said, well, before sexuality is about morality, it's about anthropology and theology. So it's about what do we believe about what it means to be a human being and what do we believe about God and our relationship to Him. Last week we talked about a passage where um, the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus. In Matthew 19, there is another passage where the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus. Um, and it seems that every time they're trapping Jesus, they are trapping him around the topic of sexuality. See, they try to trap him with a moralistic what's right and what's wrong in Matthew 19. And we'll get into this passage in the coming week properly. But, but Jesus actually responds. He doesn't respond to their question. He responds with, with, by, with an anthropological and theological response. He responds by going back to the beginning and talking about what it means to be male and female sexed bodies and how that points to marriage. 
See, every time we see this as just a moralistic debate, we are walking right into a pharisaical trap. So the greatest failing of the church is not the purity movement or even the reaction against it. Our greatest failing is in missing the larger message that our sexuality screams to us. We are made for intimacy. We were created for covenant. We have been pursued by a bridegroom who awakens our love and redeems our sin and invites us into eternal union with him. See, every sexual issue is at heart a spiritual issue. When sex becomes confusing, it causes us to re-examine what we believe about God. And getting sex wrong usually begins and ends with getting God's character wrong. See, I grew up with this whole purity narrative thing, and I'm, I'm realizing it did a lot of damage to how I see people, how I see myself. I've been thinking about that and thinking, how can, I, how can I do better for my children? And uh, I was thinking even about, uh, you know, as our, as our young children, they start to come into uh, puberty. And, and the purity narrative often communicates that, that what they are feeling, the desires that they're having are, are evil, wrong, and animalistic, and they need to be suppressed and managed, you know, until you're married. But the reality is that these desires and longings are evidence of actually good needs. The needs for intimacy and connection, the needs to be known, to be seen, to be noticed, to be desired and wanted. And by communicating to them that these needs are wrong and need to be suppressed, we are teaching them that the only way to get those needs met is the act of sex. See, the act of sex is designed as the exhaust fumes of connection, intimacy, and longing, not as a way to get our needs met. See, self-control is not needed because the body is evil. The truth is just the opposite. The body should be controlled with honor because it's worthy of honor. We don't need to teach our kids how to suppress these feelings, but teach them what those feelings are and how to get those good needs met in Jesus. See, it's perfectly okay to live without sex, but none of us is designed to live without intimacy. But we live in a cultural moment right now in the West that virtually we are taught that virtually the only place that people can get these needs of intimacy met is in the act of sex. See, both the secular and the purity narrative are reactionary narratives. They are filled with fear, shame, and guilt, and they are about protecting. They are a reaction. But the third way, the way of the kingdom, is proactive, and it's open-handed and driven by grace, love, and truth. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, what do, you, what do people say the Son of Man is? Or who do the people, people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. 
And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. See, Jesus says to Peter, you, you, you've had a revelation, my son. And only the Father could have revealed that to you. What is the revelation that Jesus will build his church on? The revelation of who he is. This is what Jesus said he will build his church on. And he said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Listen, what, what, uh, uh, Mike builds gates sometimes, I think, with metal. <laughs> I asked Mike the other day, I said, what, what do you build gates for? What are gates for? They, they are always to protect. They are always for defense. Jesus is building his church on the revelation of who he is and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. They cannot handle the pressure of people who are getting the revelation of who Jesus is and those gates must burst open and the captives must go free. Come on, the, the, the narrative of the kingdom is always proactive. We are not on the defense. The kingdom of heaven is advancing. And if you are filled with fear about what is happening in the world, you have believed the wrong narrative. And the, on the revelation of who Jesus is. Come on, but what did, what did Paul say? Marriage is pointing to something. This is a mystery of who Christ is in the church. I wonder if we've missed the point entirely. So while these two narratives debate and argue and wage war against each other, let's attempt to stand this coin on its edge and follow the narrow way. And let's embody the whole story of what it means to be sexually embodied image bearers of a living God. So let's dive into what is the story of sexuality? What is the third narrative? What is the kingdom of heaven all about? So when we look at Scripture and think about sexuality, is it just a list of do's and don'ts? Is it just a list of moral rights and wrongs? Or is it far deeper? What is it all about? What is the purpose of sex? Is it just for procreation? Is it just for pleasure? And is sexuality just about the act of sex? What is this all pointing to? See, one of the things that we see all throughout Scripture is that physical things show us spiritual realities. See, God uses natural things to reveal supernatural truths about himself, about himself and about who we are, about his love for us and, his, and the fulfillment of these that we will experience in new creation and resurrection. So Jesus said in John 3, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? In Genesis, we read that God created a world in which he desired to live. Clearly, God wanted to be in communion with humanity. And as we read further in Genesis, we read that men and women together in communion reflect the image of God, not just one or the other, but in our union together, we reflect something glorious. 
N.T. Wright said this, that heaven and earth, it seems, are not, after all, poles apart, needing to be separated forever, when all the children of heaven have been rescued from the wicked earth. No. Wrong narrative. They are different, radically different, but they are made for each other in the same way that Revelation is suggesting as male and female. And when they finally come together, that will be the cause for rejoicing in the same way that a wedding is a creational sign that God's project is going forward. That opposite poles within creation are made for union, not competition. That love and not hate have the last word in the universe. That fruitfulness and not sterility is God's will for creation. See, our bodies and our sexuality are revealing spiritual realities. We are made in the image of God. Therefore, every part of our natural bodies point to the supernatural character of God. See, in Genesis, we see a God who uses power and authority to to speak into what was chaotic, disordered and without form. And he he speaks and he creates something that is beautiful, ordered and life-giving. And then, I don't know if you've noticed, but then he shares that power with humanity. He shares that power and he says, rule over the earth, cultivate and be fruitful. But listen, he never, ever gave us the authority to rule over each other. See, Adam and Eve were originally designed as a power union, not a power struggle. And we know that since the fall in Genesis 3, that what was intended to bring life, humanity is used to rule over each other and create disorder, brokenness, hate, and chaos. It's like an almost undoing of the beauty of God's good creation. I find it really interesting that even in my own body, I always have a choice to give life or to destroy The same arms and hands that are designed to embrace and give love are also the same hands that can cause great physical harm. The tongue that I have, James says, you can use that to give life or you can use it to unleash the very hell on others. So if we wanted to understand the purpose and meaning of sex, we need to start thinking about our embodied sexuality and what that is pointing to. See, God crafted sex and our sexuality, our desires, our attractions, our good needs of intimacy, longing and belonging, to be wanted, to be noticed, to be loved. God created all of these. God created the human body with our male and female sexed organs for a purpose and natural things always point to a supernatural reality. So think about it. God crafted the orgasm. Have you ever thought about that? You might feel really uncomfortable thinking about that, but it's true. And what's the purpose of it? What is the orgasm revealing about who God is? I'm sorry if you feel uncomfortable. I warned you at the start of the series. The most beautiful and vulnerable and intimate and euphoric and ecstatic experience that we can have together in union somehow points to who God is. The Bible is filled with all of the sexual imagery. Come on, Song of Songs, anyone? Has anyone read that book? See, the largest story of sex is that God created our sexuality as a revelation of intimate union through covenant relationship with Him. 
And we see this imagery in how Jesus describes his relationship with us as church and, and he uses imagery of marriage and faithful covenant relationship. I mean, even in our reading today, we just read about that. And Paul was directly tying the covenant of marriage to this mystery of Christ and his union and his oneness with us, his church. And we see this imagery all through the Old Testament where Israel is, is committing adultery against God when, it, when it's not faithful to the covenant. I mean, think about this. We are described as Christ's bride and He is our bridegroom. He is called and He is calling us into intimate love relationship with Himself. You know, as Paul says, he says, to know God and the power of His resurrection. That word know is the word gnosko, which is the same word all throughout Scripture to describe the act of sex. <laughs> That's right. Adam knew Eve, and they had a child. It's the same word that is all pointing to the fact that we are made for intimacy. See, at the very core of who we are as human beings is screaming at us. We are made for intimacy and that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are incredibly intimate and relational being that, that well before humanity was created, God was not lonely and He has always been in an intimate relationship and family. Father, Son, and Spirit. And now they invite us into that relationship. See, our purpose is to be one with God, one with the church, and then invite others into that oneness. And we'll explore this a lot more in, in the coming weeks, but God is not a deistic God. He is a theistic God. Deism is this idea that God is out there somewhere and He's just not that interested in our lives unless we're doing something wrong. No, he is an intimate, relational God, interested in every part of your life. Christopher West says in, in his book, Fill These Hearts, he says, in other, in other words, man finds a certain completion in giving himself fully to woman and woman in giving herself fully to man. A gift so intimate that the two become one flesh. In the New Testament, we learn this prophecy about Adam was ultimately a prophecy about the new Adam, Christ the bridegroom, who would leave his father in heaven to become one flesh with his bride, the church. And God loves us in such intimate ways that the scripture compares that love to the love of a husband and wife in their most intimate embrace. God made us sexual beings as men and women with a desire for union, precisely to tell the story of his love for us. So all sexual questions are spiritual questions. This is far bigger than morality and what's right and what's wrong. This is about what it means to be truly human. 
So the bigger question is not just does sexuality have a purpose, but does humanity have a purpose? And if humanity does have a purpose, how is our sexuality and our sex, male and female bodies, and our lived out sexual expression displaying the overarching purpose of humanity? And as followers of Jesus, how does humanity's purpose connect to the purpose of the gospel? And if the purpose of the gospel is to share in the love life of God and be transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus, then how does my sexual expression Display this to a sexually confused world. Can you see now how the church's silence on sexuality has not helped? It has not protected the image of God. It has damaged it. Because the church has by and large chosen either to be silent or ignorant or to just engage in a moral argument and has missed the primary purpose of our bodies and our sexuality. The human body is a theology because it's meant to be a sign of God's own life and love in the world. Who enjoys puzzles? Yep, good. A few people that enjoy puzzles. My mum loves doing puzzles. Last time she was here, she did a massive puzzle on the, on the table. I just get frustrated after. Yeah. Once I can't find that one, nah, I'm done. Our our sexuality is like a puzzle, though. It's like a jigsaw. And depending on the story that has formed us thus far, we potentially have a whole lot of individual pieces scattered all over the place. Some of us have these pieces that may say things like the fear of intimacy or abuse or sexual abuse, rejection, abandonment, father wounds, mother wounds, gender confusion, unwanted sexual desires, confusion, and many other things. All of these pieces scattered all around us. And many of us are just trying to piece our lives back together somehow to make sense of it all. But when we do a puzzle... We, we, we usually have a guide, an image to which we follow. The box has a picture on the front of it, unless it's a wasgage thing, and then it's like backwards. But generally, we have this image on the front of the box to follow. See, the front of our jigsaw puzzle box of our confused and fractured lives is Christ. But I think for many of us, we probably feel a little bit like Humpty Dumpty who sat on a wall and had a great fall and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again. And I think the problem is we sit there like Humpty Dumpty with all of our pieces scattered all around us. And we're trying to piece those things back together and we're looking to others to try and piece all of our pieces back together. But even for poor Humpty Dumpty, even all of the king's men couldn't do that. There is only one who can do that and he is the king. See, we look to creation and created beings to piece us back together again when we were in fact made for intimacy with the Creator. See, sexuality divorced from its design and purpose is like trying to do an extremely complicated puzzle without the image on the front of the box. 
Bill Johnson said this, when we lose the knowledge of the existence of a creator, we lose the concept of design. When we lose the concept of design, we undermine the discovery of purpose. When we undermine the discovery of purpose, we remove the conviction of accountability. When we remove the conviction of accountability, we undermine the fear of God. And the Bible says that the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. So with no fear of God, we have no wisdom, no purpose for sexuality, no responsibility, and no design for human flourishing. And we are left with total sexual confusion. So unless we understand and embody the kingdom sexual narrative, our kids are trying to piece together a very confusing puzzle with no image to look at. We doing okay? All right. Let me give you one more cool little image. See, the physical body is like a is symbolic of a greater and beautiful narrative. So just think about this, that just as the woman receives the man, the church receives the bridegroom who is Jesus, and Jesus initiates intimacy with his bride and impregnates his church with a seed, a deposit of what is to come. The Holy Spirit in this deposit is reproductive and life-giving, and the Spirit of God is reproducing the nature and character of Christ, and we are being formed into the image on the box. This is the better story. See, the way of Jesus is not just about behavior or even motives or practices. It's not about what I am doing or even just why I am doing it. Listen to this. Please catch this. Morality plus willpower does not equal holiness. See, the number one question we must be asking if we are interested in becoming the image on the box is this. Who am I becoming by what and how I am doing it? Who am I becoming? The other week I sat down with my, with my daughter, oh we were driving actually, it's way better to talk and drive. Uh, she's just turned 13 and, and so we're talking about, about who she wants to be and, and so she's talking about having a vision board and I said, oh, before you even start thinking about what you want to do, I want you to ask the question, what type of person do you want to be? Who do you want to become? Because that is going to gauge what you do and how you do it throughout your life. That is a way more important question than what you're going to do so that you can buy a house and cut. Like, that stuff will come. Who are you becoming? See, this is what discipleship and spiritual formation look like in the context of sexuality. Am I becoming more like Jesus? See, we've had lots of questions coming over the last few weeks that, that are asking, you know, is this sin? Is it okay to do this? And, and I love that, that these questions are probably coming from a heart to honour God and wanting to do what's right. Um, but I fear that at worst, they're actually coming from a place of shame and fear and guilt. See, questions like, is it okay to masturbate? Is oral sex okay? Is porn actually a sin? See, these are... These are wrong questions. The better question is, who am I becoming when I engage in this and that and this? 
Am I dehumanizing God's good creation by engaging in this? These are the better questions. Who do you want to become? See, what is the purpose of sex itself? The actual act of sex. I love this description from a woman called Laurie Craig. She said, to selflessly, holistically give yourself to another person and in so doing, share with your covenant spouse how Jesus did, is, and will complete us holistically. See, sex is a heaven whisper. The most euphoric, vulnerable, and intimate feeling we can experience on this earth is the orgasm, and it points to our union with Christ. What will it be like when we are living in complete and fulfilled union with Christ in the new creation? I think the orgasm is giving us a whisper of it. In the book, God Loves Sex, the author says, our lover is meant to take our breath away. Our lover's body is meant to give us a taste of holy wonder. That unexpected and often unexplained moments makes us shudder with an awe of being in the presence of someone utterly different and other. And he goes on to make the connection between this and worship. And he says, in our worship and union with our Creator, we shudder being in the presence of someone who is wholly other. This is why people worship sex, because it is a whisper of heaven. It's a taste of a much greater reality of an intimately loving God that is jealous for you. See, humanity has always worshipped sex because what they are actually longing for is the fullness of their union with their Creator. But just like the first story in the Bible with Adam and Eve, rather than living in the trusting union with God, we choose to take and grasp and dehumanise one another in the pursuit of becoming like God, but in doing so, we actually become more like animals. Listen, this is not about morality. This is about humanity and what it means to be a human, an image bearer of a perfectly loving and intimate God. And so just like the gospel, sexuality is an embodied expression of who God is. See, sex is the most powerful, euphoric, and beautiful thing we can do as a human being, and it's like a nuclear bomb. And I truly believe the only container strong enough to contain the latent power of sex is the faithful covenant marriage relationship. See, outside of this, it has the power to destroy lives. And you might be here this morning saying, come on, Michael, relax. A little bit of sex never hurt anyone. I guarantee you there is not a person in this room that has not been directly or indirectly hurt by sex. How am I going for time? Are we okay? I don't want to leave you hanging like last week. (laughs) 
So Paul said that anything that is not faith is sin. Anything that's not faith is sin. I want you to think of sin as simply self-medicating our brokenness. Which includes the willful ignorance of our unmet needs and desires. We all self-medicate in different ways. Pick your poison. Shopping, food obsession, porn, gossip, judgment, scapegoating, Netflix, idolatry, gaming, vanity, Facebook, social media. At the end of the day, we're just trying to self-medicate what we should be only getting from Jesus. We're just looking for our own way to self-medicate. That's what sin is. Anything that is not faith is sin. So it's possible that we have made idols of our spouses. See, if you think you can find all your needs of intimacy in your spouse or your partner, you are bound for a life to be let down. So we make an idol of them when we're trying to take something from them that they can never fully provide. See, we all have innate, irrevocable needs of intimacy to be loved, to be seen, to be known, to belong, to be chosen, to be picked, to be accepted and have purpose. And the question is, where will we get these needs met? These needs are inherently good needs. They're not bad needs. These needs shape our desires. They shape our, our addictions and our affections. And where will we get these needs met? See, all around, of our, all around us is creative beauty. The creation all around us whispers of true life. That creation is always pointing to a creator. And, and my beautiful wife is a whisper of true life. See, in her, I see creative beauty and that points to a beautiful creator. But if I see her as the source of life, then I'm trying to suck the marrow out of the bone. See, the source of life is not my wife. In her and in intimacy with her, I can see a whisper of my creator, but he alone is my source. See, it seems that by default, we are all born with these innate desires and needs, but it also seems that by default, because of the fall, we are hardwired to find these needs met in creation and not the creator. But thankfully, in the person of Jesus, the Creator came into our broken story, not to change God's heart and mind about us, but to change our minds and hearts towards God, to open our hearts and our eyes to see Him once again, the source. See, when we reconnect with God as our life source in union with our Creator, no longer do I need to have my disordered desires half met with creation, but fully met in my Creator, now and for eternity. And the problem is, we have created a church culture where we have church acceptable ways of getting these needs met and then church unacceptable ways of getting these needs met. We have created standards. We have created all sorts of categories around how people do and don't get those needs met. And we've decided that the group over there, they're the sinful ones, but me getting my needs met through whatever, that's not sin. 
to whenever we try to get these needs met outside of the person of Jesus, that is sin. See, pornography is like a bottomless pit of disordered sexual desire. We consume more violent and perverse porn. Why? Because the need is never met. Not only is the desire disordered, but God's good creation is disfigured and and dehumanized to meet this disordered sexual desire. Just like pride is a bottomless pit of self-aggrandization, self-righteousness and judgment, and we become addicted to the feelings that it gives us. But the need to be noticed and wanted is never met. So from the porn addict to the pride addict, we all for short of the glory that is Christ. And all of this is distorting the image of God on the earth. I want us to take a moment just to watch a short video and then we're gonna, then we're gonna close. Um, this video is from a woman called Laurie Craig. She leads uh, uh, two ministries. One's called Hole in My Heart and the other is called Impossible Marriage. And uh, I watched this the other day and I thought, I've got to share this because the way she talks, I hope you'll catch something so deep. So let's watch this video. Thanks, guys. So she (laughs) came alongside me and I went to her not because of the gay stuff, for lack of a better term. But for the suicidality, can, can we restart that? Was the I was like, yeah, I want to die. And my friends are like, um, you should like not want to kill yourself. And I was like, that's probably true. Dog. So she <laughs> came alongside me and I went to her not because of the gay stuff, for lack of a better term. But for the suicidality is I was like, yeah, I want to die. And my friends are like, um, you should like not want to kill yourself. And I was like, that's probably true. So I started to see her, but she walked with God. And this woman never pulled out Leviticus, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, blah, 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 blah. Never once did she. Do you know what she'd do? She'd ask me obnoxious questions like this. Lori, when you envision the ideal perfect woman in your head, what are you picturing? I was like, I'm not going to tell you that because you're like 65 and that's but then I started saying it and do you know what words came tumbling out of my mouth it was not sexual words it was heart words remember those core needs I was talking about to be seen known loved chosen desired have purpose be safe I said I want to be seen and known and loved and desired and she said Lori Those are not bad things. You're just looking to the wrong place. And the right place was not to a dude. The right place. Oh, no, then I said, well, better not be Jesus because I know Jesus and I've tried him. And she said, well, it's Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) And you guys, I didn't know that I could know Jesus and even really feel like I knew Jesus here 
and not really know and experience God's love in the deepest places of me. I had a lot of barriers between those good needs and the need meter of my soul. And she came alongside me, not with some weirdo therapy. She came alongside me with good old fashioned spiritual disciplines. The primary ones that helped me not go from gay to straight, but go from broken to knowing and experiencing God's love, the primary ones that helped me were the disciplines of lament and listening prayer, biblical listening prayer, (laughs) where the Bible, like you're filtering everything. And I met Jesus for the first time in those places of pain that we just kind of brush off. And I fell in love with him. I didn't fall in love with men. I fell in love with Jesus. And do you know what love does? A thousand million trillion things. But love empowers us. It says in Ephesians 3, may you know this love, though it is so great, you will never fully understand it. Then you'll be filled with the fullness of life and power that comes from God. God's love empowers us to die to self. So I started doing that then and I've been doing it ever since. And I'm inviting people on the journey with me. Wow. Isn't that great? I think there's a beautiful picture in there of what it means to disciple people as well. You might have picked up in that video as well that Laurie experienced the same sex attraction. How do you feel about that? As Laurie journeyed that through with Jesus, not with all the shout knots, but journeyed it through with Jesus, she's found she is attracted to one male, her husband. And they now lead an incredible ministry called Impossible Marriage. People don't need the truth. And when I say the truth, I mean the facts. They need the embodiment of Jesus, someone who will walk with them and embody the person of Jesus to them. So we are the hands and feet of Jesus. How will people know love if the feet of Jesus do not walk to them and walk with them? How will they know love if the hands of Jesus do not reach out and embrace them? We're going to talk about that a lot more next week. The music team, you guys can come back. Sorry, I have gone a little longer than I planned. Let me finish with this as the music team come back. See, the goal, the goal for our human experience is not to be fixed. The goal is not even to be straight. 
the goal for all of us is to bring our desires and affections to Jesus and be filled. I want you to imagine that our souls are like an empty cup and and we carry these cups and we go to this person and to that thing and to this person and we say, will you fill my cup? Please, can you fill my cup? Please, can you fill my cup? And we, we have these experiences like when people don't fill our cup, we feel rejected and abandoned by them. And, and we feel like, oh, if you don't fill my cup, if you don't meet all my needs, you're rejecting me. And, and, and then sometimes people do try and fill your cup, but the needs and the desires are never actually met. And so then we take and we grasp and we demand from people to get the desires that we need met. And yet this cup never gets filled because if you look a little closer, you will see that the cup is broken and the cup leaks. The cup has holes. But it's only when we bring our broken cups to Jesus does He first heal the cup and He fills the cracks with His love and He heals the holes with His grace and truth and He heals where we have been broken and He fills us and then we become cups of hope and cups of love overflowing with His goodness to the world around us. In Chinese culture, they have this idea called kintsugi where, where, where they repair broken pottery with gold and they, they fill in all the broken seams with gold. And the idea of it, this art, is understanding that the piece is more beautiful for having been broken than if it was never broken in the first place. And this is what Jesus does with our broken and fractured lives. I love in the, the, um, the program, The Chosen, Mary turns to Matthew at one point and he says this, I, I don't think he's waiting for us to be holy. I think he's here because we can't be holy without him. Why don't we stand this morning and let's, let's pray. Let's fix our hearts on Him. We're going to worship. We're going to respond with communion. I realize that I've gone much longer. Oh, Father. Father, I pray that this revelation of who You are this revelation of Christ and His union with us, that this would be foremost our desire and our affection. Yeah, if we have any hope of being the church You've called us to be, we first have to fix our hearts to you. You are the desire of our heart. You are the only one that can meet our needs 
for intimacy, belonging, and love. Father, I pray that we would be not hard on sin, but honest about sin. Honest about our own sin. Honest about our own needs for intimacy and belonging. We would turn to you, Jesus. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are with us. A deposit of what is to come. We thank you for your grace. Yeah. Thank you, God. Let's just respond now, communion and worship. Let's open our hearts to Him. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Give me